You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. At Holy Cross, uh, if you're new here this morning, we are taking the summer um, to take a look at specifically what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ. In short, what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Because there's biblically no difference between someone who professes faith in Christ and someone who's actually following after him. Those are supposed to be the same person. Um, And we're doing this through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And we're doing it because this book was written to do just that for people who experience life as believers in Jesus in a world that it was becoming increasingly more and more hostile to, to that way of seeing the world, seeing the world through following of Jesus. And so today we come to the question of to what extent discipleship runs? To what extent, how far does this go? Is Christian discipleship a matter of belief? Is it a matter of, of practice or what? And so today, we're going to look at the fact that being a follower of Jesus means following a narrow way. We're in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 21 this morning. If you have your place there, either in the scriptures or in your order of worship, if you stand in honor of God's word. This is God's holy word. Hear it again. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we ask your blessing. We don't ask for your presence. You're already here. You are the one who called us into this time. Instead, we simply ask that you would speak to us, preach your gospel to us, open our hearts to receive it and to hear it with love and with joy, no matter where we are this morning, whether, whether we are wandering into this place for the first time or whether we have been in a place like this or this place week after week for our whole lives. Every one of us needs to hear your gospel this morning, Lord. So we ask that you would do the unimaginable, that you would unite our hearts closer with Christ. You would make us into faithful followers of Jesus. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. I've been to Europe once, and in that... um, 
simply to one country, that is Ireland. Uh, I loved my time in Dublin. It was fantastic. Um, and quite frankly, is one of the reasons why we're here this morning. Uh, but while I was there, I was incredibly thankful for something called the DART. The DART is their um, kind of regional rail system, the Dublin area rail transport. Um, and it goes everywhere throughout the city. We were actually on the, where we stayed in Dublin was on the edge of it in a little uh, coastal town called Greystones. You get on the DART, so that's the last stop, right? And it takes you into the, to the city and it goes all throughout the city. You know how rail services work. But I was thankful for it, first and foremost, because Irish drivers are crazy. I mean, not only are their vehicles the size of some kid's Power Wheels Jeep, you know, they drive on the wrong side of the road. Did you know this? They drive, on, they drive on the left side of the road. What kind of crazy maniac drives on the left side of the road? I don't know how they live uh, all trying to drive that way. Now, of course, if you're Irish, this isn't a big deal, right? Because you know that part of being Irish is driving on the left side of the road. But if you went to Ireland assuming that you could live there and still drive like an American, there'd be big trouble. Big trouble. Now, in a way, this is a kind of a very illustrative, uh, it's very illustrative of how we view the Christian life, right? And, and what Peter's talking about this morning. Because being a follower of Jesus, a disciple, is more comprehensive than we often understand it to be. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this passage in two ways. They're found in your bulletin. There's an outline, if that's helpful. We're going to look at the call to follow, and then we're going to look at the power to follow. Okay? The call to follow, the power to follow. You ready? All right, let's jump right in. Let's begin with the call to follow. Peter begins this section by drawing us the distinction between who Christians are and who they were. Look down at verses 14 to 16. All right, now remember, before we get there, Peter is talking to Christians, Right? those who claim to have faith in Jesus. And he begins this section with the word therefore. And, and uh, you know, if you remember, I don't know, English class or any kind of uh, discussion on how to read something, you know that when you see a therefore, you, need, you know that what is about to be said is being based on what he has said before. And so, what did he say before? Let's remember that, okay? Peter has just described the fact that God, by his mercy, has rescued a people for himself. Christians, uh, from a state of guilt and corruption that is universal to humanity, okay? It's a universal problem. And that he has rescued these folks and restored them to a relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he has shown how this, this salvation, that's what he calls it, that this salvation is in fact the climax of the great story that the, entire, the entirety of the Bible is telling throughout the entire Old Testament. And so what Christians experience through faith in Jesus is in fact... God's means of rescuing us and the world from what is wrong. Namely, the alienation we have from God because we've all betrayed him. And so in light of this, Peter begins this section, okay? And he says, in light of this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, being self-controlled. Place your hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to come back to that sentence. I want you to just kind of Stick that in the back of your head. We'll come back to it. But let's keep going right now. Peter says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all the conduct of your life. Okay, here's what's going on. Last week, if you remember, some of you were here, not all of you, but some of you were here. Last week, we talked about how Peter is looking for us to be shaped by a story. You remember us talking about that? 
shaped by a story, specifically the story of the scriptures, that we'll all be shaped by some story. He's telling us to be shaped by that story, the story that the Bible tells us of God, of us, and the world. And here he's further fleshing that out. When he says, don't be conformed, that word is, a, is an artistic term. It's, it's what sculptors do. It's about shaping and forming and sculpting something. He's saying, don't be shaped, don't be sculpted by the passions or lusts of your former ignorance, but instead be the obedient children that you are. Be holy. Now, let me catch this up for those of us who weren't here last week or just forgetful like me. Because the Bible says that all of humanity, all of us, every one of us, you, me, everybody outside of these doors, that we are in a state that the Scriptures call sin. Now, when you and I hear that word, because of our cultural baggage, because of the background noise going on, we hear bad behavior, right? And then we begin to claim, well, who says what's bad is bad? And, and then we get all, all those questions, right? But the Scriptures don't talk about it that way. The Scriptures talk about, um, talk about sin not, as a, not, not just as what we do, but it's who we are. What it means is it is a state where we are seeking independence from God where we are alienated from Him, and all of this by our very nature. Which means that you can have very, very good behavior and still be alienated from God. Very good behavior and still be seeking it independently. Because sin is about breaking a relationship, not a rule. But the Bible says that you and I weren't made for that state, that we were made for a dependent relationship on God, that we were made... uh, that we were made to, to be in a loving, dependent relationship with Him. But because of the choice of a certain representative of ours in the garden. We're now both guilty of betraying God, which we do every day, okay, every one of us, and stuck in this state that we can't get out of. And the Bible describes this state, state of sin, in several different metaphors. The one that Peter is primarily drawing on this morning is one of slavery. It talks about it like slavery, that we are slaves to it. The slavery is to our passions, Literally, the, the word that we translate passions there in many of our translations is the word for lusts, our desire to satisfy ourselves. You know what I mean, right? You know what those desires are. You know how you and I do something for someone, and then we get angry because we don't get recognized for it, even when we're trying to do good things? Or how we do something nice for someone and then get frustrated when we don't get something in return? Or how many of us get miffed because we've done everything right for God. And yet he hasn't come through for us in what we expected. Those are even the the best examples. You know, those are the things that we we think, wait wait a minute, but I I was doing good things, right things, good behavior. Well, see, the reality is that shows that those actions weren't really done for the other. It wasn't really done for that other person. They were done so that we could get something. And the reality is, that is connected to all we do. That is part of our our desires, our passions, our lusts, to satisfy ourselves. But the interesting thing is that Peter seems to say that Christians are no longer to be shaped by those passions. They are part of a former ignorance. Now, we're going to get to why that is in a minute. But the point of this is to to say that as obedient children, we are to be holy like God is holy. That, That is to say, in other words, we're to bear the family resemblance. Okay, That's an easy way of putting it. We are to bear the family resemblance. Now, two things on this. I know we talk a lot about how all people are God's children, right? That's a certain truism in our culture that everyone is God's child, but frankly, that's not the perspective of the Bible. 
It's kind of like um, that, that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, and we all think that that's in the scripture too. It's really not, you know, maybe in the book of second opinions, but it's not in the book, any of the books that you'll find in the Bible. Uh, but here's the thing. When the Bible talks about the fatherhood of God, God's fatherhood is not based on creation, which is where we want to base it, right? All people are God's children because he is their creator. It's based on redemption. It's based on redemption. In other words, we are adopted into his family, not born into it. Again, we'll, we'll get to more on that in a minute. Second thing I want to say on this, though, is that most of us think that holiness, when it says, be holy as I am holy, we talk about bearing the family resemblance. We think that holiness, when we hear that word, we think uh, some form of like moral purity, right? Biblically, however, the word means, it simply means separate. Now, that, of course, includes a kind of moral separateness, right? But it's not, that the, it, it means no less than that, but it certainly also means more. It means much more. It means a distinct way of being. And this holiness, this holiness that, that um, Peter says, he's, he doesn't say, so go be holy. He says, go be holy as God is holy. In other words, God is the one that defines it. Not some semblance of a definition that we come up with ourselves because it's convenient, right? That's generally how we work, right? Most of us, I mean, many of us in this room are churchgoers, religious folks, right? And we know that we always seem to major on those uh, things. The things that we say God is really passionate about really are those things that we're really passionate about, and so we're really hoping that God's passionate about them. God really likes these rules, so I'll keep them. Those, eh, he's not as, those aren't as important to us. Now, instead, it's to be holy as God is holy. He is the Holy One, okay? But then Peter goes into this talk of father and judge. Look down at verse 17. He says, if you call on him as a father who judges impartially. Now stop there. For many of us, this sounds absolutely crazy because what we have done right now is we've mixed two things that never should be mixed. Because a father, if God is a father, what that means to us is that he will love us unconditionally no matter what we do. In fact, we can keep spitting in his face and he's like, ain't that cute? You know, it's like, ah. We think that that's the way that should work. And so when we add it, judge into that, that's like gear grinding. They're mutually exclusive. God as a father is supposed to love us no matter how much we betray him or disrespect him or, or what have you. But a judge is like the opposite. Well, Peter's saying something similar. What he's saying actually is if you call on him as father, remember, remember that he is one who judges without respect to persons. Now, what does that mean? Most of us, like I've said before, Christian or not, believe that the Bible says that our main problem is behavioral, right? We've talked about that. Uh, I've said that a couple of times this morning, that, that our problem is primarily behavioral. And this is why the image of judge works for us. Because we, we, we see um, judging as something you do of behavior, right? You judge someone's behavior. That, that seems to make the most sense. But the Bible, though, sees behavior as a symptom, not a problem. It's a symptom, not the problem. Remember what I said before. Sin is what we are, not what we do. We sin, we betray God because we are sinners. In other words, the problem scripturally is something deeper, and it calls it, uh, it's a problem of the heart. It's a problem of the heart. But here's the thing. The Bible also says that from the heart comes behavior, right? Andrew read that passage for us this morning out of, out of the Gospels, that from the heart all these crazy things comes, and, and it often will describe it in terms of a tree and its fruit, right? You have a bad tree, you get bad fruit. You have a good tree, you get good fruit. But the problem isn't the fruit, it's the tree. Right? Funny thing about bad fruit, though. I'm sure you've, you've recognized this because you've, you've bought fruit just like anyone else. 
Sometimes that bad fruit looks really good on the outside, doesn't it? It's real pretty. Shiny. You know, that shiny apple and you bite into it and it's like nasty on the inside. Brown, and, but on the outside it looks real nice. But it's rotten in the core. Now here's why this matters. Peter says, if you claim him as father but still have bad fruit, watch out. He judges all people impartially, whether you claim a relationship with him or not. He will judge based on fruit, not claims to being part of the family. You tracking with me? The bottom line is this. Peter says, if you claim to be part of his family, but your life is not conformed to the family resemblance, but according to your former way, according to the way of what he calls your, the passions of your former ignorance, your claim is probably false. You with me? It just got real in this place. Now, in saying this, there are probably two responses, right? On the one hand, some of us might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Rick. Now, I've, I've been around Christians, or I've been in church long enough to know that what you're saying sounds weird, because what you're saying is that what I do makes me right with God. I thought I was made right with God through faith. Yes, you are, and no, I'm not, okay? Listen close. We place our faith in Christ, and we are made right with God. That is called justification in, in Christian theological speak, right? We are justified. And, but we are also set apart for God, which is called being sanctified, being definitively made holy. And then we are made a part of his family. That is called adoption. That is why Peter says, as obedient children, go do this. He doesn't say, to become children, be obedient. You tracking? You following me? Because his language is very important. The whole point is this. If you're not being conformed to God's holiness, then you might not, in fact, have actually placed your faith in Jesus in the first place. You may just think you have. You were made right with God by faith alone, but the faith that makes you right with God is never alone. Never. If it is, it might not be Christian faith after all. On the other hand, some of us are probably thinking, if, if some of us are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, that makes me a little nervous. Others are thinking, no big deal. Like, we've already checked out because we're like, I got this holiness thing down. I, I got it down. Like, I'm good. Yeah, I know, right? Here's the problem. Most of us think to be holy as God is holy is about being morally pure about being separate from those dirty sinners and full of indignation at all the ways that people aren't acting like we are. Friends, that is not biblical holiness. That is not biblical holiness at all. Biblical holiness is shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You want to see holiness? Look at Jesus. You want to see what it means to be holy as God is holy? Look at Jesus. Listen to me. If your holiness doesn't look like spending time with whores, hoodlums, and hypocrites, just like everyone in this room, that is not God's holiness. If your holiness doesn't drive you to recklessly give yourself your time, your talent, and your treasure so that others might flourish, it is not God's holiness. If your heart doesn't break over this city, wanting it to be redeemed rather than judged... That is not God's holiness. Period. End of story. 
be holy as he is holy, not as you think holiness is. But Peter has left us with questions unanswered, so let's keep going to see where the power to follow comes from. Let's start with what we've been redeemed from. Look down at verse 18. Peter says this. Seeing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. Okay, now stop there. First, we have to define a term. That word redeemed, right? We're, in, we're, we're still in the South for the most part, right? That word redeemed has a churchy connotation to it. That is not what Peter means, okay? When Peter uses that term, the people around him hear slave, not churchgoer, okay? Redeemed is what you did to buy slavery, slaves into freedom. You have been redeemed from slavery into freedom. And so Peter, again, is talking to Christians, and he is saying that Christians have been purchased out of the slavery that we existed in, a slavery to self, to brokenness, to sin. Now, secondly, he describes that slavery as the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, let me let you in on a little scholarly secret. Scholars debate who exactly he's talking about. And they do that because forefathers can mean a lot of different things because he's speaking to a mixed audience. When I say mixed, what I mean is, remember, if you're in the, if you, the first century Jewish worldview of Peter, Peter's Jew, okay, uh, first century Jewish worldview, there's two kinds of people. There are Jews and there's everybody else, right? There's Jews and Gentiles. And in that crowd of churches that Peter is talking to throughout Asia Minor, remember there's a bunch of different cities in this, there's going to be a mixed crowd. There's going to be Jews there. There's going to be Gentiles. Who's he talking about? Both. The feudal ways inherited from their forefathers is both groups. Now, why is this important? The fact that he doesn't make a distinction is huge for us. It means that those who are really religious and those who are not are pretty much on the same level. Now, look, we, we have no problem understanding Gentiles. The majority of the Greek world is being feudal in their ways, right? They were pagans. They worshipped Zeus. Okay? Like, we make movies about that dude now. Like, it's just... And we're like, man, it crazy people remember that. Like, they were slaughtering animals all the time to, to a million different deities. They participated in crazy stuff like temple prostitution to get their fields to grow. Crazy stuff like that. We would look at them and we would go, yeah, 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 pretty feudal. Y'all are nutty. What are you doing? That, that feudal way is inherited from your forefathers. But Jews... What about them? Peter doesn't make a distinction. Now we, but, but wait a minute. They worship the true God. Yes, but they weren't in relationship with him. But, but they were moral. They followed the Ten Commandments. Yep. They sure did. And their morality was futile, according to Peter. This is huge. Religious folks, and folks we would look at and go irreligious. Now, they were very religious, but we just wouldn't identify it as that. Okay. Religious God-worshipping folks, they had the true biblical religion. Irreligious folks. Peter says, futile, whether you're moral or immoral, those lives that looked messed up and those lives that looked clean are all in need of being redeemed. Friends, our problem is not our behavior. Our problem is that we are not reconciled to God. Now, some of us live that out. Some of us live out that alienation and independence through, through immorality, and others of us live it out through keeping our nose clean. But we are all in the same boat. Every one of us. We are all in need of redemption. So what will redeem us? Peter says, look, is it going to be silver or gold? 
There's not going to be a purchase price. So what is it? That's what Peter gets into in verses 19 to 20. He says, we're not redeemed with silver or gold, but instead with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. All right, now what's going on here? Remember what I said before, or at least I have said it before, is that when we, when we sinned, when, we, when, um, when everything changed that day in the garden, we entered in a, into a state called sin that brought with it two consequences. Corruption, which is what we've been talking about, slavery, right? And guilt. Corruption and guilt. And the scriptures say that what all of us deserve, every one of us, in light of that guilt, is death. Now, by that, I don't mean a cessation of existence. I know that's what most of us think death is. That is not what the Bible says death is, okay? We, we, the Bible says everybody, everybody lives forever. It's just what happens afterwards that's the important part, right? But it's not cessation of existence. Death in the Bible is judgment for sin. The New Testament calls it hell. The point is that our sin deserves or it earns death. Now, some of you are probably thinking, this is what always gets me upset about Christianity. I knew this dude was going to do it, and here he goes. This angry God thing. Why do we have to have all the judgment? Now, that is a great question. But here's the reality. If God is a person and not a force, like Christianity says, right? A person, like you and me, personal. And if we have betrayed that person, as Christianity says, then guilt for that betrayal only makes sense, right? I mean, all betrayals bring guilt. When you and I were in school, right, and your best friend turns on you, starts dating the person you wanted to date, right, and you're like, I can't believe it's the end of the world for like three months and everything's bad, or three days, who knows how long it takes. The point is, you know what that betrayal brings, and there is a weight that comes with it, and that's making light of it. Some of us have dealt with and borne significant betrayals, betrayals by the very people who should have known better. We know that all betrayal brings guilt. The question is, who will bear that guilt? The betrayer or the one who was betrayed? And that is where Jesus comes in. Because you see, in Jesus, listen to me, because this is what makes this distinctly Christian. In Jesus, God came and lived a life without sin, which means he had no guilt. That's what, that's what Peter means with the whole lamb thing without spot or blemish, okay? Perfect. No sin. Nothing to taint. But then he died in our place, taking on himself the judgment due our sin. And and the scriptures say that when we place our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. So that that, that means that his life becomes our life. His life, his faithful and righteous life becomes ours, and his death for sin becomes our death for sin. So our sin is paid for, and we are redeemed from our sin. But not just from the penalty of it, right? That's what I've been talking about, guilt. But from the power of it, too. His death doesn't just deal with our guilt, it deals with our corruption. It deals with our corruption, we are no longer slaves to sin. In other words, we are renewed and given new hearts. The tree is made good. So that, so also should the fruit be. Now, that leads us to what we've been redeemed for. This is where verse 13 comes back into play. Peter tells us to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? We're not sure what that, most of us are like, I don't know what that means. Listen, the Christian hope, when you say, place your hope in the grace of the... The Christian hope is not in being taken out of the world. It's not leaving the world. It's this world renewed. The Christian hope is for God to renew the world to what it was made to be and us with it. That's why he calls us exiles in verse 17. Because 
we're looking around at things and we're like, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. And you see, when you become a Christian, you are renewed as a citizen of another country, a part of another world. We've been redeemed to live in that world, a world without sin, a world without death, a world without pain. And our life now is meant to anticipate the world that's coming. You with me? That's why Peter says in verse 21 that through Jesus we are believers in God who raised him from the dead so that our hope or faith are in God. Did you notice something there? Peter did not say, so that you could have faith and hope and put it in God. He says, so that the faith and hope you have are already in God. Now, so what? Well, here's why this is important. Everyone in this room, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, everyone in this room has faith in something. Everyone in this room has hope in something. Everyone in this room believes that something will make things right for us. We're not not blind. We know that the world isn't right. We know that things aren't right for us and in us. And we all have hope in something. Where is your faith and hope this morning? Listen, I I don't care what you think the right answer is, right, to that question. I mean, whether you made a profession in Jesus like two days ago, two decades ago, or haven't yet, let's be real in this place. Where's your faith this morning? Some of us think that money and power are going to make everything right for us, right? We get enough money in that 401k, or we get enough power, we get enough influence with people around us. Guess what? That's where your faith is, in that money, in that power. Some of us think sex or love will, will take care of that for us. We get accepted by enough people or we're able to to have enough of the the pleasure that we desire, the conquests that we want. We think that'll make things right for us. So guess what? That's where your faith is. Some of us think that proving our naysayers wrong will do that. You know what I mean by that, right? That person in your past who said, you'll never amount to anything. You'll always be this. You're just a this. You're an X, Y, or Z. And we think, when I prove that person wrong, I'll show them. That's where your faith is. That's where your faith is. Some of us think that being good will make us right, that getting high will, that being successful will. So guess what? That's where your faith is. Friends, Jesus died so that your hope and faith might be in God. Because he is the one you and I were made to hope in. Made to have faith in. Jesus died to redeem us from that slavery. And don't be fooled. I mean, if your faith or hope are in anything else other than Jesus, you are a slave to that thing because you will do whatever it takes to get it. You will serve it tirelessly to get what you think you you need from it. But friends, Jesus is the only master that if you have him, unlike those things, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you totally. Leave behind the futility and passions of your former way and embrace Christ. Now let me conclude. If this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us that being a disciple of Jesus is not easy believism. Okay, What I mean by that is, I made some decision, I made some choice, I, I walked an aisle... 10, 15 years ago. And now it really doesn't matter what I do. I got my get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm like, woohoo! look at this. Plenary indulgence. Can go do whatever I want, you know. 
claiming to be a Christian while still living with your faith in money or sex or power. Friends, that is like moving to Ireland and thinking you can drive like an American. You are heading for a collision and fast. But friends, by grace alone, trusting in Christ alone, God can and will change not just your location, but your very citizenship. The very way that you think about life so that you can be a part of the world that he is creating through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He will redeem us to follow a narrow way. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we ask that you would be near to us. Not a single one of us can claim we are consistent followers of that narrow way. My friends, are anything like me? We blow it daily, and we show that we still need to repent and believe on Jesus again because our faith and our hope are in so many things but Him. And so I ask for every person in this room, myself included, myself especially, Lord, would you give us repentance to turn away from those things and faith in Jesus so that we might follow Him, that we might produce good fruit, that we might be holy as He, as you, our God, are holy. Not for our own sake, but for the sake of the city and for the sake of your great name, that, we, that you might become famous in Stanton. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.